What is it that you feel you want to put out in the world? Go do that. If you're a creative person, if you're a baker, a dancer, a photographer, a screenwriter, an actor, a comedian, a podcaster, and you want to figure out how to make a living doing what you love, this is the show. This is the show don't keep your day job. My name is Kathy Heller and I'm a singer songwriter. I make a living doing what I love and I want that for you. This is the show that's going to help you do that and give you not only inspiration, but some real life strategies. This is going to help you figure out how to take your creative passion and turn it into a profit. This episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job is brought to you by Aptive. Aptive produces audio-based workouts created by certified personal trainers available through a mobile app. New members get 50% off an annual membership. You can visit aptive.com slash dreamjob. That's A-A-P-T-I-V dot com slash dreamjob. Thanks to Slack for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Slack is a messaging app which brings all your team's communication together, giving everyone a shared workspace where conversations are organized and accessible. Go to slack.com to learn more. Hey guys, this is Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. Uh, Happy Christmas, Um, wherever you are in the world, whatever you're celebrating today, it is definitely, it's a day where the whole world just feels a little bit still. And my mindfulness teacher posted today, Susan Kaiser Greenland, she posted, Christmas is more of a state of mind than anything else. And in certain ways, it's true. I think it's a time where everybody um, can just feel the little extra gratitude. And today, just take a second to pause in the stillness. And think about the fact that you're breathing in and out and think about all the gifts that you do have. And instead of focusing on what's not there, focus on what is. In light of that, I just want to say I can't believe this is our last episode of 2017. And it's just been such an incredible ride. I'm so grateful for all the things that have transpired. A few weeks ago, I posted on Instagram that we had over a million unique downloads of the show and it's only gone up and up and up. And I'm so grateful to each one of you. Thank you for making me feel um, like I have a purpose. And really, you make me feel so significant. And I am just overwhelmed by all of the love and all the amazing things that have happened because of this show. I can't believe all of the incredible guests that we've had on the show. Um, and I, I'm really mostly um, most blown away by you guys. I get so many emails and letters where you guys are letting me know how the show has affected you. And I want you to stay tuned for next week because I'm going to highlight some of the wins, some of the things that have happened and transpired, some of the steps that have been taken um, by you because you've been listening to the show. And I think you guys will be inspired by what your fellow listeners have done and the steps they've taken and things that have happened and the results that have happened and the momentum that's going on. Also, next week's show will be all about how to get the most out of 2018 and what things to really focus on and what to prioritize. Today's episode, I think, is going to be a really fun one. We're going to um, look back at the year. There's so much stuff that comes up that we say, oh, that's so great, or this guest was so great, or we love what this person said, but uh, we had to choose, and so we picked our favorite 10 guests, and we chose some of the moments that we felt that if we could sum up this year, if we could sum up what we've been doing and what we really want to be clear is the message that we're sending you with as this year comes to a close. And I think that this is a powerful episode because as you listen to these clips back to back, 
you will be reminded of really what's possible for you and what you're here to do because it puts it all together in one episode and it helps you really distill down what are the takeaways, what are the main things that we really want you to have sort of in your pocket as you go forward in 2018. What are the things that are going to give you the most fuel and remind you of what you really know to be true, which is that you are full of unlimited potential and the time is now. So we're going to go through those now and um, and I hope that you guys enjoy this. This episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job is brought to you by Active. Active produces audio-based workouts created by certified personal trainers available through a mobile app. Aptiv's key benefits include access to expert trainers for maximum results and motivation, a variety of classes and levels so you're engaged with your fitness program over time, and flexible audio workout formats so you can work out just the way you like. Whenever or wherever you like to work out, at the gym, at home, outside, when you're traveling for business, Aptiv is ready to go along with you with their mobile app. It's like having a personal trainer in your pocket. Whether you're interested in meditation, running, strength training, indoor cycling, or yoga, Aptiv trainers give you the guidance you need to be better at the types of exercise exercises you love, delivered in a flexible audio format to make fitness a lasting part of your routine. Active has fun seasonal challenges to help you achieve your fitness goals, like a quick strength circuit while your cookies bake or chill yoga flow to take a break from holiday stress. It's a supportive community full of active members of all levels reaching for their fitness goals just like you. So I thought this was pretty cool because it's an app, right? And it's something that I can just, you know, click on. Just like I'm always on my phone, I'm always searching through apps anyway. It just makes it super easy. And I felt like it was really neat. I like the meditation stuff. I like the yoga stuff. Subscriptions start at $9.99 billed monthly or $99.99 for an annual membership. For a limited time, new members get 50% off an annual membership, which is $49.99 for the whole year of unlimited workouts. You can visit active.com slash dream job. That's A-A-P-T-I-V.com slash dream job. Thanks to Slack for supporting this podcast. Slack is a messaging app which brings all your team's communication together, giving everyone a shared workspace where conversations are organized and accessible. Slack connects the tools and services you need in one place so you can reduce emails and streamline your team's communication. Organize your team with real-time messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app. Slack also saves you time and improves productivity. No more searching through emails for that one follow-up or going through multiple systems to find out what you're looking for. Plus, it's easy and convenient. You can drag and drop file sharing that works with all the apps you already use like Salesforce and Zendesk and Google Drive. Plus you can tailor Slack to work with more than a thousand other apps with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly. You can always pick up where you left off no matter where you are. I use this with my team every single day and it makes it so much easier to manage conversations instead of having to look through different emails and try to figure out who said what when. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. That's slack.com. So We're going to start out with where I think everybody is, which is sort of dealing with the challenges at hand. And sometimes for a lot of us, uh, we get to a place where we just feel like we're stuck. We feel like we're lacking the resources or we're lacking the time. There's something missing, whether we don't know the right people or we don't have the money to start our side hustle or we don't have the time. There's always a challenge. And at the end of the day, usually that challenge has to do with really how much we're believing in ourselves and our own resourcefulness. And some of the clips that we felt really stood out, we're going to go through now. So we're going to start out with Jonathan Adler an amazing designer, uh, and his story is just incredible. He started out um, graduating from Brown, not having any clue what he was going to do with his life. He said his greatest skill was faxing, and he moved to New York City and got several jobs, which he got fired from, each one every single time, and he wound up going back to what he really loved, which was just making pottery. 
And that love of pottery, without any clue and any roadmap of how he would get to where he is today, he is now um, a multimillionaire. He's got over 28 stores. He has designed hotels. He's got a whole line of pillows and candles and sofas and tables. Um, he has taken that love of pottery and he is now a, uh, a maven in the decor and design world. Uh, I think that you're going to find this inspiring. And uh, let's hear what he has to say about what he was told about his amount of talent and where he might wind up. When I graduated from college, the Brown Daily Herald, the school, did a uh, did an article about graduating seniors in which they profiled two seniors, one of whom knew exactly what he was going to do, yeah. and he was like going to Wall Street. And then they profiled moi as the clueless graduate. Oh my god! Um, wow! And oh my I said, I know, and I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do tomorrow. Maybe I'll just move to Santa Fe and make baskets. I have no idea. So I was really um. I was at a loss and I thought, all right, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I'm going to go ask my teachers at RISD if I can just spend a year there um, continuing to pursue pottery and avoid the real world, but in sort okay. of a non, non-official capacity. Right. And I, uh, I did that. And then after a year, I went to my teacher and I said, you know, this is great. I think I want to get an MFA. And she said, sorry, dude, no space for you. You don't have any talent. This isn't your That's literally what she said? You don't have talent? Totally. Oh, my God. I know. And I, this is not your calling. No. Wow. Unbelievable, right? To think that Jonathan Adler was told that he didn't have the talent to get to where he was. Wah, wah. That woman really didn't know what she was talking about. Okay, next up, we have Emily Giffen. Emily Giffen is the best-selling author of books like Something Blue, Something Borrowed. I've read all of her books. I adore her. Uh, one of her books was made into a movie. She's really, really the pinnacle of what it means to be a best-selling uh novelist when it comes to fiction. She's really done it all. She's a very down-to-earth person. And Emily was a lawyer. She went to UVA Law School. She was really, really the person who everybody thought was going to be the successful attorney, a partner in a law firm. She was miserable. She wound up quitting her job to go write novels and uh, chiclet, as they call it. And uh, she had a lot of rejection in the beginning, and she persevered, and she stayed with it. And I want you to hear what she has to say about that. I finished a book. It took me about four years to write it. It was a young adult novel. So I sent okay. it around and, you know, I got the standard rejection slips. And then finally I had an agent that wanted to represent me. And I was thrilled because you really feel, you know, you're told you read this in the books that, that, that right. that's a big step. That's sort of you're halfway, you're, you know, you're at least halfway there when you get an agent or uh-huh. I don't know, you're a third of the way there, but you're definitely feeling yeah. hopeful. So I was thrilled and, she um, shopped the book around and the the rejection letters you know, rolled in slowly at first or actually probably quickly at first. But there was a few outstanding letters and then I got depressed and then it was like, this is never going to happen. And I remember this agent that I had, she, I think she signed a lot of clients up looking back. I think that's what it was. And so she didn't really have any great faith in this book. And looking back, I can also see that it that it wasn't very commercially viable or it wasn't very well written or whatever it was. I mean, it was a decent book. I'm mm-hmm. proud of it as a first step. But ultimately, um, it was rejected. But I couldn't get her to even email me back to like tell me that it was like not going to happen. 
So I remember I finally wrote her this letter and it was like, happy new year. You know, I understand there's probably not great news, but I really wanted closure with this manuscript. And she wrote back and everyone has stories like this. You know, they're stories of just sinking so low and like, oh, this is there. But she wrote this email back that said they all rejected it. And that was it. And she didn't even write a period at the end of the sentence. The day that I left my law firm, I mean, I'd left sort of in stages, you know, like I worked a little less, a little less, a little less. But the last day that I really left with my final box of, you know, personal items from my office, I was standing in the 42nd floor of the MetLife building in New York and the elevator doors opened and I got in and he was sort of, he was coming out or he was waiting, but he passed me by and he said, oh, you're going to write that second novel because I guess he knew that the first one didn't pan out for me. And I said, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I am. And he did that sort of the double gun shot hand signal. Can you picture that? And like, <laughs> yeah. he's like, good luck with that. And I remember thinking, man, like he had this little smirk on his face. He's totally a character oh, from a he movie. Was That's just, hysterical. And I God. remember thinking, so I do not want him uh-huh. to know when this book is ultimately rejected. And I actually remember thinking, okay, it probably won't happen for me, but he's not going to keep track of me by then. He'll have moved on to his next prey, like associate prey. And I don't have to come back to this oh. firm with my tail between my legs and announce that I didn't yep. publish. The book. I could go to a different city or a different firm. So I, yeah. I was still yeah. thinking in those terms of how to protect myself from this, this feeling of, you know, ultimately failing and being embarrassed. And that's one thing that I, I, do you think is sort of universal to this whole pursue your passion thing? You just have to take, you have to take a certain risk. Well, clearly it worked out for her. Um, she's written several best-selling books, um, New York Times bestseller. She's had a movie produced, as I said, she's really living the dream and, uh, and, and thank goodness she persevered. One of my favorite episodes was Saul Blinkoff. He is a uh, animator, director. He's worked on big Disney movies, and he's also directed TV shows. He he had so much to say about this, and he's such a great storyteller. And I felt like he really distilled it down. Um, take a listen to what he said. Sophomore year, send their portfolio got rejected. Junior year, now Andy and I both send our portfolios together, and I'm uh, we wait, and a month goes by. And uh, I get a call and it's Andy on the phone. I'm like, hey, man, what's up? He's like, did you hear? I'm like, no, did you? He's like, yeah. I said, what'd you hear? He says, I got in. Oh, my God. I said, what? You got you got in? He's like, yeah, I got the internship. I'm like, that's amazing. Congratulations. He's like, but you didn't hear? I'm like, no. But they could be trying to call me right now. We didn't have call waiting back then, right? <laughs> I gotta get off the so phone. I hang up the phone. I'm pacing back and forth in my dining room. I was home in New York. My mom was pacing back and forth. We're waiting. And then I can't stand it. I'm not, the phone's not ringing. So I called the head of Disney myself. Who does that? Well, I did. I get the you head. Of, talk to Michael Jordan. There you go. Right. I stepped on the court at eleven. Well, I'm not going to call the guy at Disney, of course. So I call this guy at Disney. I get him on the phone. I said, "Listen, uh, my name is Saul." I went, "Oh, Saul, I, I have your name on a list here." I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes, "Yeah, he didn't make it." I'm, I'm like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, you didn't make it." I'm, I'm like, "But what about Andy?" He's like, "Yeah, he made it. You didn't." I'm like, "Oh." I remember like slouched down in my chair. Ugh. It was a bittersweet moment. Was I happy that my buddy was getting in? Of course. But discouraged because I'm going back to Ohio in the wintertime. Not good. Andy's going to Disney. Orlando. Do you know what they call Disney World? The happiest place on earth. Yeah. You know, Andy's going to the happiest place on earth. They don't say that about Ohio. No, they don't. I'm going back to the most (laughs) depressing place (laughs) on earth, you know. And I get back to school. 
And I'm walking the halls. And you know what I had waiting for me? I had everybody come up to me like, like, Saul, what are you doing here? I thought you got into Disney. Oh, you didn't make it. Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, Saul, where's Andy? Oh, he got in, but you didn't. Oh, I'm sorry. And you know, I felt felt like a big loser. Yeah, that's not a good feeling at all. I felt like a loser. And I felt like I was known as the guy that was friends with the guy who got into Disney. No, you don't want to be that guy. And because I I felt like a loser and I became known as the guy who didn't get what he wanted, I came up with the most brilliant solution. If any of your listeners out there ever feel like a loser for not getting what they want, here is the perfect solution to getting rid of that feeling. You know what I did? I gave up. I gave up on the entire dream. Instead of being known as the guy that didn't get what he wanted, I took away the one. I gave up on anything because reality set in. Reality was Andy was an awesome artist and I was just average. Who was I to think that I could work among the elite at the greatest animation studio on earth? Reality set in, the naysayer, and I gave up on the entire thing. And then a week later, a buddy calls me up. He says, Saul, I got tickets to go see a movie. You want to go? I'm like, dude, I'm not in the mood. He's like, but they're free. I'm like, oh, okay, then I'll go. Because when you're in college and someone offers you free, you go. (laughs) So I go to the movies. I'm watching this movie. And at the end of the movie, tears are streaming down my face, crying. This movie is a true story about a guy. He's five feet tall. He doesn't have an ounce of athletic ability. And he wants to play football at Notre Dame. Oh, it's the best movie ever. Right, Rudy? Oh, my God. That movie is so I'm watching that movie. And I'm thinking, you know. First of all, it's a true story. Rudy, that's such a good if movie. you were friends with Rudy and he told oh, you he wanted to play movie. football at Notre Dame, you know what you would have told him as his friend? You would have been like, dude, I love you, but no. get a new dream. You're yeah. not an athlete. And you know what Rudy said? Oh, yeah? Well, we'll just see about that. And he tries to get in. Oh, God, I'm going to cry just thinking And you know what happens? He gets rejected. He tries a second time. Yeah. Rejected. Third time? Rejected. Yeah. But fourth time? You know, if you look at the movie poster for the oh, movie Rudy... The tagline on the poster says, when people tell you dreams don't come true, tell them about Rudy. He gets in. And I'm watching that movie, and I'm thinking one thing. If an unathletic kid could get into Notre Dame, then what I thought was an untalented artist, me, could get into Disney. And I decided right then and there, I would never give up again. Remember I told you when I was in college the first year, how that guy said, maybe four of you will ever work there. And I said, I believed in myself. Belief, it's like a light switch. It's either on or it's off. When I gave up on my dream, I put it off. And now after seeing that movie, Rudy, I bolted that light switch up and I said, I will work hard for this every second I have, every day that I have. Gosh, I love that. I mean, if you have time over the next week or so um, with the, the holiday season being what it is, go ahead and rent the movie Rudy or watch it again because it really is, it really is a story that everybody can relate to and that person does live inside all of us and it really comes down to um, reminding ourselves of what we really want and committing to it. And then it's like a decision. You commit, you decide, and then it's just a matter of time, but you decide that that's where you're going and then you do whatever it takes to get there. So moving on, let's talk a little bit about what is it that we're really trying to do, right? I mean, this show is about overcoming that self-doubt and overcoming whatever might be in the way that keeps us from having the tools and the resources. But at the end of the day, we've got to define what it is that we really want. 
I felt like one of the best people on the show who really summed that up was David Sachs. David Sachs is a Emmy award-winning TV writer, and he's written shows and worked on shows like Malcolm in the Middle, Third Rock from the Sun, The Simpsons, and many more. And he had something really cool to say about defining success. Take a listen. A friend told me that he he had, you know, had sort of started down this spiritual path and you know, had a lunch with this, like, you know, really at the time, one of the world's great rabbis. And, and I said, well, what, what was that lunch like? Like, what did he say to you? And he said to me that I have to define my terms, like success. And I never stopped thinking about that because if, especially in America and stuff like that, um, if you come up to someone, Hey, do you want to be a success? Oh, are you crazy? I want to, ah, more than anything, I want to be a success. Right. What's a success? Uh, and people, they'll throw themselves in front of a speeding bus to be a success, but you ask yeah. them to define it and they can't readily give you a definition of it. Hmm. And I think that that's a, a crippling roadblock in people's lives, especially um, people in the creative fields who, who more, more than almost anyone else need to actually have a working definition for it. And and I would suggest that, you know, one has to take, you know, five steps back and just kind of look at their life. Like, do you want to be a parent? Do you want to be a spouse? What is your relationship with the community? What is your relationship with, with the world, with your parents, with your siblings, with, you know, people who are less privileged? Or how important is that to you? Is that like, in other words, one has to, I think, you know, just get a little bit uh, less myopic, you know, often. And and then they might surprise themselves how they actually define success. So that's really powerful, really important. And, you know, while we do have a few, you know, extra hours over the holiday, maybe we can take some time to really define that for ourselves. What does it mean to you? What is being a success? You know, to me, it's about contributing. It's about living up to my potential and contributing to as many people as I possibly can. And with that, I'm willing to do whatever the very next thing is I can possibly do to contribute. So even if it's a podcast, which is out of my comfort zone, and even if I have no idea what will happen or if it will be monetized, I just know if that's the next thing I can think of to do to contribute, I do it. And it's amazing how when you follow that path and you listen to what it is that compels you, that, that's going to help you feel successful and contribute, amazing things happen. So we talked to a bunch of guests about what it was like when they were starting out and how they were defining what success was and how they walked toward it. Let's go to one of my favorite guests, which was Mandy Moore. Mandy Moore, you would know from shows like So You Think You Can Dance, Dancing with the Stars. She also choreographed La La Land. She's incredible. She is the it girl when it comes to the best choreographer of our time right now. And what's amazing about Mandy is that she started out, she was met with some rejection and she persevered. And let's hear what she has to say about when she first moved out to LA and what that looked like. I moved out to LA August after I graduated in May. You know, I've said this before, but it's really true. It's like very cliche. I had two suitcases, my Jeep Wrangler and 500 bucks. And my dad and my sister drove me out to LA and dropped me off. And then like, I was like, what have I done? Like, I don't right. know. Like, I don't yeah. know anybody out here. That's scary. Yeah. Like I just, it's weird when you're in the, like, I look back at those moments and I think, I mean, thank God I was a little bit ignorant. I have to say that about it. Like I didn't know about the business. I didn't, I just knew I wanted to dance. That was it, you know? And I think maybe if I had known what I learned in those following couple years, 
I might have been too scared to go because sure, it would, that makes sense. You know, yeah. a lot of things that nobody teaches you about. Like no one teaches you about the business side of it when you're in dance class. They just teach you how yeah. to point your feet, you know? Yeah, that's right. So what happens? Yeah, so the first like week I was here, I auditioned for a scholarship program at Edge Performing Arts Center, which is a you know a, a famous yeah. dance studio out here. Yeah, and sure. um I didn't make it. And it was probably again, I look back, like that's probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I have this personality where, you know, people tell me no and I very quickly in my brain I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll show you. You know, uh, like I'm yeah, kind of totally <laughs> You know, it's like as soon as someone's like, you can't do that. And you're like, really? Because I think I'm going to make it happen. You know, (laughs) I I didn't make it and started, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to have to kind of do this a different way. And I started working at the studio to pay for my classes because, of course, it's expensive for an 18-year-old and I was too proud to ask for any money. So I started um, working at the studio for free class and I would take class every moment that I wasn't working. And you know, that transitioned into me managing the studio. So I got more free class. And then I started going out on the road and assisting some of the choreographers, you know, in, in I guess I call it like dance conventions or classes. Yeah. And that kind of started on a whole nother career that I didn't know was going to kind of bleed into the rest of my life. But, you know, I had a whole teaching career um, where I would travel around the country and the world doing master classes and, you know, that ended up informing a lot of what has become my career now, because I think I, you know, I'm, I'm known as someone who creates and choreographs, but I also coach and teach. And that's very, you know, a a marketable skill, (laughs) you know, especially when you're working with like actors that have never moved before, you know, you have to have an ability to actually communicate what you're wanting, not just create. It's pretty cool, right? I mean, it's like you if you know Mandy Moore or if you've, you know, seen her on So You Think You Can Dance or all these other shows, you forget, right? You forget what that might have looked like in the beginning and what courage that must have taken, you know, to come out here with nothing, to get rejected, to keep going, and then to be willing to change gears and to have that self-awareness and say, you know, maybe I'm meant to be a choreographer. Maybe I'm not going to be the star dancer, but maybe I'm going to carve out an incredible life for myself. And having that self-awareness is really important. When I first came out to Los Angeles, I got dropped from a record label. And instead of saying, you know, well, that's it. I'm going to pack it in. I'm going to go do something else and settle for a life I didn't like. What else could I do is the question. What else could I do to still be doing music? And maybe I'm not going to be on tour. Maybe I'm not going to be, you know, filling up stadiums and performing. But maybe there was other ways for me to be a songwriter. And I found my way writing music for film and TV and for soundtracks and theme songs. And I'm so glad that I stayed in it and I was humble enough to say, okay, maybe I'm not meant to be this, but what else could I do? There's so much else that we can do to make a living doing the thing that absolutely is our passion. Okay, so... Next up, we're going to talk to uh, Jenna Kutcher, who is here. And Jenna, Jenna's amazing. You know, I love having all different people on this podcast, whether they have different crafts. This person's a baker. This person's a florist. This person's a screenwriter. But also, I like to have people on who are different levels of success because there is so much between where we are and where Beyonce is. And people forget that you can make an amazing living doing what you love. Um, and you don't have to be a person that everybody knows. So Jenna Kutcher is somebody who's carved out a huge career for herself. She's got like close to 200,000 Instagram followers. She started out as a 
wedding photographer. Um, and before that, she worked in corporate at Target. She quit her job. She became a wedding photographer pretty successfully. She then started teaching courses to other photographers, and she grew that into teaching all kinds of people how to grow their business, whether it's with Instagram or growing your email list. And she's she's just an incredible powerhouse. She's very genuine, very authentic, and she's making an amazing living uh, just doing what she loves and helping other people to grow their business. Let's hear what she has to say about what steps she thinks are important to think about before we quit our day job. I get messages in my DMs every day saying, I'm miserable in my job. I want to do something like what you're doing. How do you do this? And I always cringe just a little bit because I know that when you could get a hundred incredible, successful women in a room, all of our journeys look different. And so uh, embracing that is probably the most beautiful thing. And I think that there are two camps of people, the kind that need to have the security before they can leave and the kind that need to jump and figure it out as they go. And so... You have to decide which camp you're in. But for me, I needed the security. It was the Midwestern girl in me that was like, "Uh uh-uh, girl, you're walking away from a salary and benefits. You better have your crap together. Right, right. Um, So one of the things for me was I really wanted to make sure I was legal. And I think a lot of people put this step way too far into their processes. And, you know, a year down the road, they're like, oh, maybe I should turn this into an LLC. Um, If you're making money, just do it the right way, because not only are you going to be legit, but you're also going to feel that ownership and that yeah. piece of pride that like you're really going to go for it's real it. Real commitment. I'm yes. Real business. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And if you don't know where to start on that, don't ask me. I'm not a lawyer, um, but <laughs> ask an accountant. For me, what was so helpful is in our tiny little town, I found this incredible accountant firm And they helped walk me through what were the best decisions, what the best plan was. And I still work with them to this day because they've just been incredible advisors. So start there. Cool. Um, I truly believe that you should never go into debt for your business. And I know that some companies are totally different, um, but looking at like a creative endeavor, it's possible. And so I used my corporate job to help fund my creative endeavors. So once I knew like, hey, I got to get out of Target, I started saving every last penny. And we, I mean, pretty much ate ramen noodles for a very long time. Wow. But at the same point, I didn't want to go into debt for it. I Mm -hmm. wanted to be slow grow. And in that, it really taught me how to leverage the tools that I have and how to like really get savvy on platforms that are free so that I could um, figure things out without spending a ton of money. Yeah. Um, The other thing too is like, just start growing a following. Like, why are we so afraid to put out what we're passionate about? Like when you have a conversation with somebody and their eyes light up, it's like you're just excited for them, even if you don't even care or have any idea what they're talking about. It is about. so true. It and is so, so it's true. like, why are we holding ourselves back from, from putting this stuff out there? And I think it's because it's so close to our hearts. But yeah. at the same point, like I cry watching shows like Project Runway and I can't even cut a piece of cloth if I tried. But these people are so passionate and they believe exactly. in what they're doing and it, and it inspires other people. And so if you're holding yourself back on that, Get it out there. Like start growing a following, start putting your work out there, start putting your dreams out there, start speaking it into existence. And if you're worried about what people are going to think, the people that care, those are the people that are your tribe and the people that think you're silly or stupid or weird, let them go. All right. And now let's go back to Jonathan Adler. So Jonathan Adler, this is an amazing story, right? Because you, if you know him or if you Google him or if you see what he's done, 
you forget where it all started. And you guys, if any of you who heard the episode, then you know how incredible this story was. But I just think it's amazing that he cold called somebody at Barney's. And, uh, and you got to hear what happened next. Nobody would hire me. And I was teaching night classes and making pots. And this kind of limped along for about six months. And at this point, I was 27. Mm-hmm. And my parents were like, WTF. Like, <laughs> we are paying yes. all your bills. You mm-hmm. went to like a fancy college. It is pretty um, fancy, yeah. Yeah, fancy college. You're like teaching night classes in Hell's Kitchen. Oh, and no. I said, all right. And I, I was very insular, you know, so I was really just making the stuff that I wanted to make. And it's funny, I was always a bit of an insider and an outsider at the same time. You know, I think I'm just keeping it 100% real here. Like I was, you know, sort of a, you know, I was cute, young, gay, and, you know, was out and about in the town, but I had no connections in the design world and no real understanding of anything. Um, So I felt like an insider and an outsider. Um, And through a friend, I contacted a buyer at Barney's. Um, And I just said, hey, I, I was very naive. And I just said, you know, I make these pots, um... I'd love to show them to you. And they came to my apartment. Shut up. Oh, my God. I know. I'll never forget that meeting, actually, because I, yeah, I was making these pots, and I had set up my apartment in a very cute fashion, and they came, they walked up to my fourth floor walk-up. Conveniently, my my apartment was around the corner from Barney's, so that helped. And then you're like, why don't you just come over to my fourth floor walk-up? I mean, that takes, takes a lot of confidence. Um, or naivete or idiocy yeah, or whatever. Naivete. Okay, fine. Or des- so uh, you know, in. maybe also just panic and desperation, I think okay. is actually, those are probably the best words for what I was feeling because I felt okay. like such a loser at 27. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, over they came and they liked what I was making. And they said, this is really great. Um, we will give you an order, but... And this is, I'm going to get very um, inside baseball with you here. They said, okay, good, good. but the uh, the glaze on these pots is a crackle glaze. And we love the way they look, but you need to have a clear glaze with no crackle. <laughs> okay. it's, again, very inside baseball. And okay. that much sweat and tears happened not to offer that particular glaze. Um, and I couldn't mix my own glazes there. So I saw an opportunity and I went and sort of pounded the pavements. This was pre-internet and found a pottery cooperative studio in Soho where for $250 a month, I could rent like a 10 by 10 space and um, I could actually work. I could make the same pots, but with a clear non-crackle glaze. Again, inside baseball, but I think germane to the topic of how this all happened because it was about you know, say, like sort of solving a problem. Yeah, you had to be resourceful. You know, I love that. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And it was, Makes it took sense. a lot of um, effort to figure that out, but I did. And I started making these pots. And I think that um, I just thought to myself at the time, I am going to make this work. Like yeah. no matter what, I'm yep. going to make this work because nothing else has. And this is my chance. Yeah. And I did. 
So very cool. Very cool to hear the beginnings of these stories. One of, one of my other favorite episodes was having Tamara Mellon here. Tamara Mellon is the co-founder of Jimmy Choo. She's actually the woman behind the whole thing. It was her idea. She found Jimmy Choo, who was a cobbler in London. She came to him with this idea, and she grew this whole company, which was recently sold for over a billion dollars. Let's hear how that all started. So I found Jimmy Choo, who was a cobbler in the East End of London, and I would get him to make things for shoots. It was like a Dickensian disused uh, garage in the East End of London. And what you have to remember is, you know, in the early 90s, the East End of London was extremely dangerous. It was like going to Alphabet City or the Meatpacking District in, you know, downtown New York. Now, yeah. like like downtown, it's been gentrified and it's kind of hip and, you know, apartments, uh, you know, real estate's really expensive. Oh but in God. those days, I remember Jimmy's assistant got mugged for her Chinese takeaway. Oh, my so God. That's what it was like. And it was behind barbed wire gates. Um, oh, my God. And it was almost like something you would imagine seeing in a third world country. Um Anyway, so I go down there and I sit with him and I'd say, look, okay, I'm doing a Grecian story and I'm, and I'm want a Grecian sandal and I want the straps here and I want to put studs on it and I want this height heel and I want this toe shape. And, and then he'd make it and I'd photograph it and put a, a, you know, his name in Vogue. What I realized oh by doing that, no one could buy the shoes. He would make you a pair, like one off by hand right. if you bought <laughs> right. them and, and ordered them, but that no one could go anywhere and buy them. So that's what gave me that kind of light bulb moment when I said, hey, look, let's actually make a business out of this. You know, I said to him, I will go out and raise the money. I will oh find factories God. in Italy. I will deal with wholesale. We'll open stores. I've done PR so I can do your PR marketing. I can do all operational oh business. God. You design the shoes. So we, we did. We did that. And then when we got it. You are amazing. You single-handedly changed his entire life. I mean, it is like, he should, he, I hope that he's named all of his kids tomorrow. Like, think about, think about that. You just walk along and like, so here's what's going to happen. Okay. So first of all, I can put your name in British Vogue. So that's just one thing. But then I know how to do PR. I know how to raise some money and, and, I'll, and I'll design the shoes with you and you just make it. And then your whole life is going to change forever and your grandchildren's lives. Like it's. <laughs> Nobody knows this. And he gets all this credit because people just say Jimmy Choo. Nobody knows. Like, there's this amazing woman who had this entire idea and the plan and then executed it. I'm so glad that I get to share the story. I mean, I'm sure it's been shared already a thousand times, but I get, I love that we get to hear it again. Yeah. And here's, here's, here was the kicker for me in the whole story was that once we'd set that up, you know, I said to him, I said, okay, Jimmy, give me the sketches. I've got to take the sketches to the factory in Italy. Um, but the sketches never came. And that moment of realization was like, oh, my, my God, when I was going to his studio, I was designing the shoe and I didn't realize it. So Jimmy's technically very talented. He can make a pair of shoes, but it's a very different skill set to have a creative vision to design a collection. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I always think things are created twice. You know, first things are created in your mind and then technically, but first it's in your mind. Yeah. So, so I ended up designing the collection as well. And so, yeah, so it was a crazy story, but it was 16 years of building a brand, which is what led me to what I'm doing today. 
So before we get there, because that's where we're going, but just before we get there, so there's, cause there's so many people who are listening who have day jobs. Now, not maybe as fabulous as that particular job, but that is still scary to leave your job, especially when it's, you know, a fantastic job. So what was that moment like? And what did you do? Did you prep for it before you left where you had already kind of, you know, got some things underway or did you leave and then start raising money and, you know, going after building the brand? Okay. Well, the truth is I got fired. <laughs> I love how honest you are. You're like, well, they made it easy. My so- God. And I'd had the idea to start Jimmy Choo before that. And I think, you know, what happened, I I ended up going to rehab. Um, I had a drug and alcohol problem. And I was just that as I was getting tired of what I was doing because I knew that. And, you know, a big thing for me is I knew that I love being an editor, but I knew that I'd never make any money really being a fashion editor. And so I, I really wanted to start a company. And I had the idea to start Jimmy Choo. And then I just, you know, my addiction was kind of taking over. And then eventually I got fired, which was the best thing that ever happened to me because it was such a kick in the butt that I needed. So what I did is I went two weeks later, I went and checked myself into rehab. And then when with the mindset of I'm going to get sober because I'm going to start this company. And then when I came out of rehab... You know, I started negotiating with Jimmy and we set up the company about six months later. It's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's like we we know on some level that all of these brands that we just, you know, know so well, we know that they must have started somewhere, but we forget. And it, it really is amazing when we remind ourselves of what that looked like, because it's so easy to compare our behind the scenes mess to people's highlight reels and then to think there's just no way I'm ever going to get there. And when we remind ourselves of what it takes and how people actually began, it gives us so much more, um, a sense of empowerment. So another one of my favorite episodes was having Bobby Brown here. I mean, I've been wearing Bobby Brown makeup forever. Uh, and it's, it's just incredible if you know how she started by opening up the yellow pages to try to get her first job as a makeup artist. Listen to this persistence, listen to this hustle, and listen to this girl who started out, she didn't have a parent gave her a trust fund. She didn't have somebody who knew someone in the business. Just listen to how Bobby Brown became uh, the empire and, and the, who she is in the makeup world. Listen to how this started. So my boyfriend at the time and I moved to New York, got a very small apartment, and I didn't know a soul. I was kind of had a portfolio, but it was things that I had done in, in Boston, not particularly mm-hmm. amazing. And then I said, all right, what am I going to do now? So what did I do? It was before Google. I opened up the Yellow Pages. And I looked up makeup and models and modeling agencies, Makeup Artist Union. And I just started calling and going to see people. And quickly they explained what the business was about. And that's how I learned. Wow, that, that's extremely resourceful. So you're yeah. picking up the yellow pages and you're literally cold calling people. Yes. And who are you asking to speak to? Like a hiring manager? Well, it, de- to- well it depends. I called the Makeup Artist Union and I right. asked to make an appointment and they said, okay, it was probably some secretary. And I made an appointment. I went in to see the head of the union. I still remember his name is Ed Callahan. I don't know why. He was a very large man and I had my portfolio. <laughs> and I really thought that I was going to show up and they're going to hand me a union card. <laughs> all right, you're in the union. And right. I said, I'm here. And he said, all right, sit down. 
He said, this is the situation. You either have to know someone, be born into it, or it takes about seven years apprenticing. <laughs> so I said, okay, that's not going to work. Thanked him, and I left. And then I went to see a modeling agency that had a new board, um, like new models board, and they basically said, we can send you out on jobs that you won't get paid, but you'll do makeup, and they'll give you, at the time it was slides, to build your portfolio. So I, now I know it's called networking. So uh -huh. I, started, I started doing that. And then one day I was reading a magazine about a makeup artist who was a freelance makeup artist named Bonnie Maller, and she had the coolest job in the world. She was doing makeup for all the fashion shows. She did makeup for all of Bruce Weber's shoots, for yeah. covers of magazines. And so what did I do? I looked her up in the yellow pages, I, or probably Amazing. 411. And I called her up. Wow. Um, she was not. She was not home. I think it was being completely naive, because oh. I just, you know, I just did it. I don't know where I, right. where, why. I wasn't confidence. Trust me, it was okay. probably stupidity, <laughs> naivete. But I called her up. She never called me back. But on her answering machine, it said, "I might be traveling, so if this is about work, call my agent Brian Bantry." So I scribbled his number down and I called oh him. I said, "I got your number off Bonnie Maller's." machine and I'd love to come in and show you my book. He said, sure, come in Tuesday. I went in Tuesday or whatever day it was. And he said, okay, kid, <laughs> um, you have, you're really nice, but your portfolio is quite not there yet, but here's how it works. And this is what I'm going to do. I can't represent you, but I will call you to assist my makeup artist. And when people are sick, I will give you jobs. And that's how I started. Wow. You know, I started the first company. I never took a nickel from anyone. Well, I and, I, and I had I no this. money. There's no excuse for anything. By the way, you want to be f more fit? Guess what? Put some sneakers on and walk. Like, yeah. there's, don't be a victim. So I love hearing Bobby Brown's story because there are just no excuses. And people tell me every single day, they complain to me, they tell me why it is that they don't have the lives that they want. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is us, right? How much action are we taking? We have to take massive action. What are we doing about what it is that we really want? What have we done about it? So let's stop talking about it. Let's stop wishing. Let's stop complaining. And let's start doing. And if we don't have the resources, if we don't know the right people, if we don't have the funds, if we don't have the time, let's find it, right? Let's find the people we need to know. Let's put ourselves out of our comfort zone and, and let's go Let's go figure out how to get it because we absolutely can. If we really want to, we absolutely can. And the more certainty you have about what's possible, part of why I love doing the show is because I want to hold this up you know, in front of your face. I want to show you what's possible. And I want to show you stories of people who grew things from scratch because the more certain you are of what you can achieve and what is possible, the more that that thought is going to direct you to take more action. Okay, moving on. How do you build momentum? Okay, so let's say you're overcoming those challenging thoughts and you have a clear idea of what you want and you start. How do you build momentum? So let's go back to Saul Blinka for a second. So let's talk about what he says when it comes to honing your craft, right? It is so important to hone our craft and staying in it. His name is Bill Matthews. He had a tie, like a Disney Mickey tie. Like this is the real guy. He takes my portfolio. He had the coolest voice. He was like, Saul, my boy. I like your drawings. Like, That's what he said. Father. Yeah, Saul, Sean, Sean, money penny. He's like, Saul, my boy, I like your drawings. I'd like to send your portfolio to Florida for further review. Would you like that? I'm like, would I like that? Yes. 
I would like that. You know, I was the happiest guy in the world. I mean, you have to understand, Kathy, for the first time in my life, somebody liked my artwork other than my mom. Okay. <laughs> it was like a big moment. So I hand him my portfolio. And as I hand it to him, I don't let go. I'm clutched on it. And so is he. And I'm going to tug of war with this 70-year-old man. He's like, Saul, my boy, what are you doing? <laughs> I yanked it out of his hands. No, he didn't. True story. I yanked it out of his hands. I said, Bill, let me ask you a question. Where are you going after this school? He's like, well, I'm going to that school. I'm going there. I said, so when do you actually need the portfolio in Florida to look at it? Oh, my God. He's, like, you ask this. he's like, well, not for two weeks. Why? I said, because any drawing I do tomorrow has to be better than every drawing that's in this book. And if I had two more weeks... I could do better work. He said, no problem. Here's the address. Send it to me. You have to understand, I was working so, so Clearly, hard. That's such commitment. You know, that's something I didn't tell you before. When I didn't get into Disney the second time, and right after I saw the movie Rudy, I remember one of my art professors said something so brilliant to me. This is something your listeners can really, really uh, learn something from. Incredible piece of wisdom that he gave me. He said to me, Saul, can you control whether Disney says yes or no? I said, no. He says, can you control how good any other artist is? I said, no. He says, so what can you control? So I thought about it. I said, well, I can control how good I am as an artist, right? He says, no, you can't. You think Michael Jordan can control that he become the best basketball player that ever lived? No. He controlled one thing. He took 450 jump shots every single day before breakfast. My professor looked at me and said, Saul, the only thing that any of us can control in this life is the investment we make into something. The work we put in the outcome is not up to us. So stop thinking about the outcome and focus on the effort that you're making. And then he told me a sentence and he told me to write it down. And I did. I took out a piece of paper. He said, write down this sentence. Nobody worked harder today than me. Jeez, that's good. And he says, if you can't say that sentence and it's true, you don't go to bed. That's it right there. Nobody worked harder today than me. You know, think about how many people right now are listening to this and how many people listening to this right now should be realized that whatever it is that you want, whatever job you dream of, whatever it is you want, there's about a thousand to 10,000 people who want it just as bad, if not more than you. And every time you go on Facebook and you post pictures of what food you're eating (laughs) or you have to go binge watch scandal or whatever you're doing, there's someone else out there that's not doing those things and they're working hard for what they want. Right. We got to keep that in mind. And what's exciting is that they say that less than 10% of your competition is actually taking any action at all. Mm. And so if you really actually do it, That's so good. then the one or two steps you take really turns into five or 20 because you're actually doing more than most people. You're so moving. Just, you're, you're moving you're up moving. the ladder. Exactly. Beautiful. So you stand out because you're, you're competing against a lot of mediocrity. Yeah. So so I, I'm about to walk out in my portfolio. And this is a key moment for me. I turned back to Bill Matthews and I said, Bill, can I ask you another question? You look at artwork from students all around the world, right? He's like, yeah. I said, well, well, all you told me just now is that you liked my artwork and that you want to send it to Florida. You didn't tell me anything I could do to get it better. You see, when we fail in life, of course, that's a perfect opportunity to ask someone, why did I fail? When we get rejected, ask someone, why was I rejected? So you're not taking it personally and... Licking your wounds, you're using it as an opportunity to grow. You have saying, to. Let me hear it. You have to. If you ever pitch a show, pitch a movie, whatever it is, if you have somebody across that desk from you who says to you no, or if they send you a letter no, it is you have to do everything in your power to find out why. Because if you can answer use that it. question, use why, it. use it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what happens? 
this guy Bill is telling me my artwork is good. He loves it. He didn't tell me anything that was wrong with it. But even then, I know I'm not perfect. There's got to be something he can tell me that I could do to make it better. So he said, you know what? Why don't you put effects in your portfolio? I said, what's that? Saying that when you watch a movie like The Lion King and it's raining, there's fire, water, smoke. That's a division of animators called effects animators. He's like, you should put some of that into your portfolio. I said, thank you. Answer key. Again, growing, figuring out what I need to do better. I go back to my dorm room that night. I took my entire portfolio. I put it under my bed. And I said, it doesn't exist. Oh my God. Can I actually create an entirely new portfolio in two weeks? And that's exactly what I did. And here's why. I didn't want to send my portfolio with those effects drawings and have Bill Matthews look at it and go, oh, Saul, I remember him. Nice guy from Ohio. Oh, look, I remember this drawing. I remember that drawing. Oh, look, he did a couple of effects drawings, just like I expected. That's not what I wanted. What I wanted to happen is what actually happened. I want him to get the portfolio and go, oh, Saul, nice guy from Ohio. Wait, wait a minute. He did that drawing? That's new. That He did a whole new portfolio and effects drawings? Because in life, we always want to exceed expectations exceed expectations. If you're listening to this right now and you haven't written down those two words, you're not serious about being great. Awesome. I love that. You know, in life, I always say do, 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 and then assess, assess, assess. It is so, so important as you're doing and you're putting things out there and you're throwing spaghetti at the wall and you're seeing what works and you're working on stuff, you've got to get some feedback because it's that feedback over time, if you get a consistent sense of that people are saying the same thing, you can start to make those changes and you stay in it. And most people, they're already done. They've already given up. So you've got to stay in it and you've got to get that feedback. And that can be such an incredible gift as opposed to taking it such, you know, so much to heart and then giving up. We can just let it go. We can see ourselves as so much bigger than this one item. And we can say, of course, I want to give myself the grace to be patient and to stay in it. I'm not going to give up on myself and be so hard on myself because I got some feedback. I'm going to use that feedback and I'm going to show up and I'm going to do it even better. Another one of my favorite episodes, we had Jasmine Starr here. Jasmine star is amazing at helping people to grow their business and she has a huge instagram following and she gave us some great tangible tips on creating content and on working on our instagram which i think is one just important tool there's so many things we could talk about but let's just talk about one of these things in terms of gaining momentum we talked about getting feedback and honing our craft let's talk about this and growing our audience because i think this relates to growing your brand no matter what and figuring out your audience and how to how to build that let's hear what she had to say there's this key importance when it comes to growing your following is to one be consistent And I know that that sounds so simple, but people will always find excuses like, I don't have time. I don't know what to say. I don't have a photo. Those are the three things I hear the most. (laughs) But you can't grow something you're not paying attention to. Mm. And that's going to be very, very, very powerful in understanding that you have to be seen. And so if we get this from like a technical perspective, algorithms are based on a myriad of things, some which we know and some which we don't know. And we don't know exactly how they're weighted. But one of the key components that has been very open on Facebook and Instagram is this thing called inventory. And inventory is just the stock, quote unquote, your photos, videos, captions, your updates that are on hand for these social media platforms to show. If you (laughs) are not creating inventory... Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, anything that's algorithmic in nature has nothing to show. So you can't complain that you're not growing if you're not creating content to be shared, read, tagging their friends and things of that nature. So consistency is definitely number one. And number two is to understand that 
the content you're putting out on social media should really be targeted to a, a select group of people. Like you want to be known for something. So there was a time on Instagram where back like in the 2014 where I was like, I can post anything on Instagram. <laughs> and like 30 seconds later, I was like, I can post anything on Instagram. It became extraordinarily overwhelming. The minute that I created categories for social media. So I suggest entrepreneurs to create anywhere from nine to 12 categories that they become known for so that when somebody goes to an Instagram grid, they can see nine to 12 categories repeated throughout the grid to have a better understanding of what your business provides and who you are. Okay. Give us an example of what you mean. Okay. So for instance, now, since I've transitioned more to teaching entrepreneurs how to grow social platforms, how to build a personal brand, what people see, and I know it sounds silly, but a category for me is coffee. So every time you go through every 12 photos, you will see a cup of coffee in some way, shape, or form. Another one of my 12 categories is my husband and my business partner. I want to make sure that when he's responding to emails, this isn't like a sideshow. He's an equal partner to what we do. Yeah. And so it's all really yeah. strategic. So as you go through, you will start seeing strategically what I'm doing to point back and highlight my business without talking about my business. Because if I were to always say, my business partner, my business partner, my business partner is great, but I wasn't visually showing that or communicating or talking about the roles that he played in the business, I would be doing that as a disservice. Like, And if I was creating jewelry, one of my 12 categories should be, well, where do I source my jewelry? Where do I make it? What does my workshop look like? So you're creating mm-hmm. a narrative without saying uh, things Beautiful. are on sale, things are on sale. So we're getting into the psychology of what is working visually oh my God. on social so media. Good. Okay, now jumping back to the Tamara Mellon episode, Tamara Mellon created, co-creator of Jimmy Choo, this was one of the coolest things I had heard. Now, everybody knows Jimmy Choo, but not everybody knew exactly how it blew up and became the shoe that everybody was talking about. Listen to this story. You know, Candace yeah. Bushell came into the store in London. So I opened a tiny little store in, in London in Mockham Street. It was probably 300 square feet. You could fit a Oh, I love hearing this because you would never. Amazing. <laughs> Literally, my office was downstairs in a cupboard um, with no windows, and and she came into the store and she fell in love with the shoes, and so she wrote about them. And you know, we didn't know it was coming oh out. It was gosh. a total surprise. She just loved the shoes, and so it was not something that we actually, you know paid for or pursued, or it was one of those serendipitous kind of magical moments. Oh my gosh. And she just walked in. She didn't, nobody told her about it or, or she just she found, found, the she found the little story. Maybe she read about it somewhere or heard about it. Yeah. And she, she came in, but you know, I always say to people, you know, of course it was incredible being on Sex City, but the first thing we had to have was the shoes for her to fall in love with. Now, how crazy is that, right? I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that she had this tiny little, like, 300-square-foot shop in London, and Candace Bushnell from Sex and the City walks into her shop. She winds up, you know, buying a couple pairs. She brings them back to the States. She gives one pair to Sarah Jessica Parker, who wears them all the time on Sex and the City. And now Jimmy Choo kind of became, like, a character on Sex and the City. That's how often that she talked about Jimmy Choo. It was like Jimmy Choo was, like, sitting there at the table. Everybody knew Jimmy Choo. But she had to have those shoes created first, right? It's like we don't know what might happen. We don't know the opportunities that might present themselves. So we we have to trust that we go for it. But it's amazing what happens when you take one step and then you take another and how, you know, the world rallies around you and things are going to happen that you didn't even plan for. 
At the end of the day, you know, one of the main reasons that I'm doing this show isn't just because I want to help you to make a living or to start a business. It's really about your legacy. It's really about I want for every person to be who it is that they are, to add their specific color to this tapestry. And so I want to help encourage you to follow your bliss and listen to that whisper because it's not just about a career, it's about purpose. I feel like the opposite of depression is purpose. I feel like people are spending so much of their time right now on Facebook uh, chatting and arguing with people about politics or what's going on in the world. What if we just use that energy to get busy making amazing things with our own two hands, adding our own stuff to this world? I want every person to feel a sense of purpose. I want people to feel like they look back on their lives when they're 95 and they say, I was me. I did it. I didn't let things hold me back. I didn't live someone else's life. I didn't settle. I I became who I was here to become. And then by doing that, by you being the happiest version of you, that really is the most incredible thing you can contribute to the world. And we all have to take responsibility for our own happiness. Happiness is an inside job. And so this show is about finding that purpose, doing what it is that we love, not just as a way to make a living, but because when you get to make a living doing what you love, then you're really spending your life doing the thing that makes you feel the most sense of purpose. So let's talk about what that might look like. And Gretchen Rubin was here, and Gretchen Rubin, that was a great episode. Gretchen Rubin has her own podcast called Happier, and she wrote this best-selling book that everybody knows called The Happiness Project, as well as several other books. And I asked her, I asked her about this, and she's been researching this, and listen to what she said. There's a feeling like, I don't deserve to be happy, or like, you know, happiness is for someone else. Um, But there's this feeling of almost like shame around you know, well, shouldn't I be saving the world? How is me pursuing my mm, art yes. or doing nature? Like, I shouldn't do that. Instead, I should yep. do something, you know. How do you make that leap of like, no, you deserve it and allow yourself. And that is changing the world. Well, so you're exactly right. And that that anxiety takes two forms. It's either given all the comforts in my life, if I'm not happy or I want to be happier, I must be a spoiled brat. Yeah. Or it's saying, given all the suffering in the world, it's not appropriate for me to seek to be happier. That's exactly right. Yeah. But what research shows is that actually happier people are more interested in the problems of the world and they're more interested in the problems of other people. They're more altruistic. They give away more money. They volunteer more time. They're more likely to help out if a family member or a colleague or a friend needs a hand. That's fascinating. I wouldn't yeah, have known have that. The, wow. That's research. Yeah, we have the uh, emotional wherewithal to turn outward and to think about the problems of the world and to think about how what we might do to help. And when we're unhappy, we tend to become isolated and defensive and preoccupied with our own problems because we're not happy. And also happy people make better leaders and better followers. They have more energy. They're healthier. They have healthier habits. And one of the, this is, I have my splendid truths of happiness. And <laughs> one thing that everybody understands And it's one of the nicest things about human nature is that one of the best ways to make yourself happy is to make other people happy. But what people often don't realize is that is the corollary, which is that one of the best ways to make other people happy is to be happy yourself. Now, going back to Jasmine Starr, I want you to remember what she has to say about growing your business and about affecting other people and about contributing. Listen to this. 
The biggest mistake that I see so many entrepreneurs is they say, like, I am for everybody. Like, no, sweetie, you're not. And the minute right. you try to be for everybody, you become nothing to everybody. And so it's like to understand that there is a group of people you are uniquely qualified to serve. And I come from a school of thought that it is more better, more better. Wow. I was also homeschooled, Kathy, and I know how to <laughs> spoke English. Um, it's also better. It is also better to talk, connect, help, serve 200 people than trying to get 2,000 people interested in what you're doing. And that's like an that's offshoot of a Dale Carnegie quote. And the, But here's the thing. Dale Carnegie knew what the heck he was talking about back in the day. This is far before social media. And he said he even had... A smaller number. He said, like, you know, be interested in two other people than trying to get 200 other people interested wow. in you. never heard that. That's so smart. Oh, oh and I... So I, why I, does I, that work? Why does that make sense? Well, because those people become your evangelist. You don't have to ha tell other people how great you are. Two other people are telling their friends how great you are. And then uh, their friends, when they see how great you are, will tell their friends. So it's this pyramidal structure, which works so profoundly on social media. So often what I see is these business owners talking about how great they are. Oh, the vacation that they're going, the cappuccino and pears that they're sipping on. And oh, their product's on sale. Their product comes in green. Their product's at a pop-up shop. So it's a series of commercials about how great they are instead of saying, this is how great I can serve you. This is how great my product is at helping you. This is how great my product is empowering you, educating you, uh, diminishing a fear. And I think that when you genuinely care about the people you are serving, your business grows like wildfire. Okay. And finally, I, I felt like this was a great clip to, to leave this show on as we look back. I love what David Sachs had to say about what it really means to live a life that is successful and what it means not just to make your art, make your craft, do your work, but to make your whole life into something that really feels like something you're proud of. Listen to what he said. You don't need anyone's approval to do something like creative and to make another person feel good. And so mm -hmm. I guess what I would suggest is, is like, there are just so many reasons that we'll know or we'll never know, like in terms of you know, I mentioned it already, but Van Gogh, how could it be that he could be that gifted and it didn't, you know, in his life, it didn't work or, or whatever yeah. it is. Like, so we, we just don't know in terms of our own life, but there is this aspect that we do have control over, which is our lives themselves and, and how we want to react to things and how we want to approach things. And, and to take that very, very seriously, because when we leave the world, like, you know, no one's watching any of these shows that we just mentioned and as, as fancy as they sound and okay. So maybe on Hulu, someone's watching one or another of them, but, but no one cares really, you know, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, it's, it's fun <laughs> to get excited about it and like, Hey, and then you were on this and then you were on that. And wow. But you know, really honestly, you know, as far as I'm concerned, no one cares. You know, the, the question is like, you said you were going to do that thing to that guy. Like, did you do it? Like, what, what about that other person who, like, looks sad over there? You've got a moment. Like, did you smile at them? Did, like, the, these wow. are, I think, the things that actually do last forever, like, unlike these other things, you know? And these are the things that we get to, that, that, that is our real true legacy. And I, I believe that, honestly, I promise you, I believe that in the deepest way. So that's really a great place to leave it, right? And... As you go through the day and the week and the year, that's why I really want you to ask yourself, what do you really feel like you have to contribute? Because I am positive that you are here 
to to inspire other people that that if you if you're here there are no extras in the game of life you are here for a reason and you've been assigned you've been assigned to inspire other people doing the thing that you most love to do it's there for a reason it calls to you for a reason not everybody wakes up wanting to do the same stuff i get emails and instagram messages every single day from all different kinds of people who have all different kinds of dreams there's a reason for that. So if something is calling to you and telling you to write a book or to be dancing or to be baking or to be knitting or to be opening up your own shop, there is a reason for that. At the end of the day, what is it that you truly feel that you have to contribute and how will that make the world better? What is it that you feel you want to put out in the world? Go do that, okay? And remember, remember the stories we talked about today. Bobby Brown, Jonathan Adler, Tamara Mellon, Mandy Moore. These are huge, iconic people today in their fields who all started out without a tremendous amount of resources, didn't necessarily have all the confidence in the world, but they kept going and look what they've created. And yeah, they might not be in the Peace Corps, but each one of those people who's out there being a happy version of themselves, making beautiful things, inspires other people around them to go do what it is that they love, which makes the world better and great. I can't wait to see all the things that you guys are going to create. I know without a shadow of a doubt, there's so much inside of you. There's so much. There's such a reason why you are here. And the world The world will rally around you. You will find your tribe. And just like Jasmine Starr said, it doesn't have to appeal to the whole world. You'll you'll find a segment of the world who's excited about it. And that's all you need, right? That's all you need. The odds of you becoming a person and being put in this world, it's like 400 trillion to one that, that it all works out. You know, I know babies are born every single day, but it's like 400 trillion to one that you became who you are. And so if you are here... I mean, this is not, you know, overstating it. You're you're absolutely here for a reason. And um, it's worth it to keep going. I know it can be overwhelming, but I'm going to be here week after week cheering you on. If you want to give me a huge Christmas present, holiday present, um, you could do two things. You can go to iTunes and make sure you leave us a review because that helps us a tremendous amount. You can also come to Instagram and follow me at Instagram. And if you want, I will follow you back. Just private message me and say, hey, Kath, I followed you. Follow me back. I'll follow you back because I'd love to be there cheering for you and watching from the sidelines what you're doing. Also, you can support our sponsors. That always helps us. It helps us to keep this amazing team, to keep our producers, um, which helps us keep making the show. I love you guys. I can't tell you in words how much you've given me this year, how much you continue to give me. Thank you for letting me play this role. I hope this show continues to be inspiring. You deserve to feel inspired because there's something inside of you that's got to keep coming out. And it's just going to get better and bigger and more sparkly and more delicious. And 2018 is going to be what you decide it's going to be. So let's decide that this year, we're just going to blow the lid off it. We're just going to rip it open and step up. This is the moment. And in the season of wishes and and the holiday spirit, let's close our eyes for a second and think about what do you really want? And what if you had so much more control over that than you think? By being willing to step out of your comfort zone, being willing to take whatever action you could possibly take, and the certainty of what's possible. Happy Christmas, everybody. And I'll talk to you next year. Special thanks to our executive producer, Tim Street, and producer, Emma Kikuchi. 
The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com.